Uh, if you're younger, you, you may not be as familiar with uh, Madonna, but she is known as the queen of pop. That is weird. That, but a lot of, a couple of Gen Xers and millennials. Okay. Anyway, she's known as the queen of pop because if you don't know, she is the best-selling female recording artist of all time. In fact, she is the most successful solo artist in the history of the Billboard Top 100. She's also known as the highest gro grossing uh, touring recording artist act in the world. In other words, in all of the world, where, where, when artists go out and do the, their worldwide tours, nobody makes more money than Madonna. And she's already been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Of course, you might know her more, more notoriously, for those of you who are younger, don't know her, all her decades of achievement as having had weird surgery, plastic surgery or something in the news. But despite all of her accomplishments and applause that she receives, she's not immune to the need for acceptance. In an article, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> she was interviewed in for Vanity Fair magazine. She says, all of my will, all that's within me is focused on conquering this horrible fear I have of inadequacy. That my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being seen as mediocre. And it's always pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. And I still have to prove that I'm somebody despite all that I've done. In fact, for those of you who are more, maybe not into pop culture, but more into classical literature, playwright Arthur Miller, the, the, the man who wrote The Death of a, uh, the Death of a Salesman, he stopped believing in God as a teenager. But many decades later, he says, I was carrying around this sense of judgment that I cannot escape. I still felt like I needed to prove myself to others, to have someone tell me that I'm okay, that I'm accepted, that I'm approved, and I never, still never quite found it. You see, acceptance is a powerful human need. And without experiencing it in your life, it can destroy lives, it can destroy friendships, it can destroy marriages, as some of you have experienced, and it can even destroy the family of Christ when we gather together, even when, as we're worshiping God. So let's talk about this morning by turning it in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're in this series, you know, called Clear, where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel and the good news about Jesus. That the Apostle Paul has, is writing to this cool, hip urban church in Corinth, that instead of being blinded by the values of this world, to see clearly through the, your identity in Christ, that as you are loved, as you are forgiven, as you are transformed through the cross, that he guides us and grows us in both holiness and unity, which is the theme this morning, together, distinct from the world. And he's been showing us that through this letter, how that practically applies to issues like sin and conflict and sex and relationships. And so in chapters 8 through 10, we saw that Christian living isn't simply this checklist of your legal requirements or your liberties, but that instead, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God and for the good of others. But the problem that we're discovering in chapters 11 through 14 is that the Corinthians aren't glorifying God together. Instead, they're experiencing all kinds of disorder and discord as they gather together to worship Jesus. And so today, 
what we're going to see happening is that despite the fact, if we were clear about our identity in Christ, that we are fully known, fully loved, fully accepted in Christ, and yet as the Corinthians gather together for church, instead of coming together at the Lord's table, they're failing to accept one another. So let's see what we can learn from them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, picking up from verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, Paul says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions amongst you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions amongst you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So four times in this passage, in verses 17, 18, 20, and 34, I want you to see this repeated repeated phrase. Paul says, when you come together as a church for worship, including for the Lord's Supper, communion, which is the theme of the passage today, when you come together. Because that means that communion is not just about bread and wine, but about the people of God coming together, having communion with Christ and common union with each other in Christ. But in verse 17, when they're gathering for worship and when they're gathering for a meal, instead of making them closer to one another, instead of making them better, it's actually making them spiritually worse because in verse 18 and 19, instead of being united in Christ, they're divided. They're forming factions within the church. Now, this is different than what we saw earlier when they were kind of dividing over who was the best preacher or teacher that they follow and, and who has the best theology. This is a different kind of division and factions that are forming around the Lord's table. And the only positive that comes from this, Paul says, is that it's now becoming clear who is genuinely faithful to Jesus because it's those who aren't neglecting the communion or neglecting each other in the family of Christ. So in verse 20, Paul calls them out. When you come together, it's not, to eat, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. It looks like it. There's a pastor, there's some bread, there's some wine. <coughs> There's some prayer. There's some reading of scriptures. People come up and take the communion. Well, why is that not the Lord's Supper? Because communion isn't just something you do with your hands. It's something that we do with our hearts. It's a both and, that there's an outward act that's symbolic of our inward devotion to Christ. And when they are doing this, they're not thinking about Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and honoring Jesus. Well, Pastor Paul or Pastor Josh, how how do you know that? How can you see what's in a people's heart. Look at verse 21. This is the key to this passage. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. What's happening there is back then, they would gather in the, the homes of a, a wealthy Christian patron. So somebody who has a large house. They didn't have church buildings back then. And so they would gather together in a home and Worship on Sundays could go on for a number of hours, so if you ever feel like my sermons are too long, you have never been to a uh, first century church. And so afterwards, they would share a meal together. And then as they're eating this meal together, it would culminate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. 
And what was happening was instead of sharing food equally, instead of treating each other with dignity, it was either one of two things. That each of them goes ahead with their own meal means that it was a bring-your-own-meal kind of event, of a event. So you come, and like, you don't expect the patron to provide all the food, and so everybody brings the, each their own meal. And so that means that you would have a rich guy with takeout from the steakhouse sitting next to the poor guy who has a sack lunch, maybe like some bread or nothing. Or maybe more common in Roman society in their banquets was that you would invite people to your home if you were a secular Roman citizen, and if you were wealthy, you would have tables set out, and this table with all the honored people get to sit there. The honored people would get to eat first, they would get to eat best, and then the next table over would receive the leftovers. So maybe they were simply reflecting the society around them. But either way, that means that this meal, this meal that was meant to be a symbol of unity in Christ, that at this table you and I are brothers, our sisters, has now become a flashpoint of inequality and alienation. Well, okay, but let's say that maybe you're one of the more wealthy Corinthian Christians back then. You worked in high tech <laughs> and you had a pretty good salary. Is it wrong for you to have more than others, to have more money, to have uh, more access to food? No, of course not. In verse 22, Paul says, no, it's not wrong to have that, but if all you're doing is coming here to indulge yourself, go eat and drink at home then. We're gathered to worship God. And so communion is not about filling yourself up with food and wine. It's about filling yourself up with Jesus who pours his life out for all, every brother and sister in Christ. And so Paul asked them, why are you despising God's church by humiliating those with nothing? So that's where the division is happening. I want you to get that picture. That even though this person is equal in dignity and value as your brother or sister in Christ, while the rich, the real members get the first, the best, get more, get drunk, the poor are getting the leftovers. And so we see this clear division within this church between the haves and the have-nots when communion reminds us that Jesus gives himself equally to all. So Paul says, what kind of Christian love is that? How do the rich get preferential treatment and the poor mistreated if all are equal? If all are equally sinful? If all are equally loved by God demonstrated in Christ? And so the big idea of the text this morning is how we treat one another with acceptance, with value in the communion of believers. The common union of believers reflects how we worship Jesus. Now, you and I, we look at this passage and feel like, okay, cool, we, we check the box of having completed that because it's not really, we don't really have the same issue when it comes to communion um, as symbolically all you and I get is kind of this piddly portion of, of wafer and bread, like uh, juice, right? And when it comes to lunch at church, we serve lunch here, but everybody gets the same lunch. Nobody gets like better food than the other person, not even the pastors. And so instead, we need to ask ourselves, how am I treating others in the body of Christ with the same attitude as the Corinthians? How do I need to reflect worshiping Christ instead of rejecting someone in the family of Christ? So on Sunday, when I'm at church, do I tend to only hang around my favorite people and talk to my favorite people? Or do I notice others who maybe have been here for years, decades, or somebody who's new? 
but that I never bothered to get to know or to love as a brother or sister in Christ. When I invite my church friends to my home or to lunch, are there people who I overlook, neglect, and reject? Let's move on. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord, here's that famous passage. A lot of times we don't read the passage right before it. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want you to see this very clearly. Because a lot of times this is how we look at the text, but I want you to see how it applies in the context of this passage. Paul is giving us more than a theology about communion. He's giving us an antidote to division within the body of Christ. In verses 23 and 24, yes, we learn a lot about communion, but that's not the point of this passage. Paul reminds us what Jesus has passed down to all believers, that on the night that he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, he took bread, he thanked his father, he broke the bread. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why? Why do you want us to remember this thing about you? Because, I want you to see this, the Lord's Supper is a continuation of the Last Supper, where Jesus ate with his disciples, which is a continuation and celebration of the Passover meal. If you look in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, that he was earnestly desiring to celebrate the Passover, eat the Passover with his disciples at the Last Supper. Lord's Supper, Last Supper, Passover. Because the Passover is rich in symbolism and significance. If you remember back to the time when the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, that God delivered his people from slavery and death in Egypt by having them paint the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorposts to act as a substitute sacrifice, to pay a redemption price so that death for sin would literally pass over them. Which points us all forward down thousands of years of history towards Jesus who's not just a lamb of God, but the lamb of God, sacrificed on our behalf so that the judgment of God and death for sin would pass over us. This is what this means. And so as Jesus is breaking this bread, it is a symbol that his body is given up for us on a cross for the forgiveness of sin. And in verse 25, this is how we know it wasn't just part of their regular meal. After supper, after they had finished eating their regular meal, he also took this wine, which is a symbol of shedding his blood on a cross. A new covenant, that means a new relationship between man and God where there is forgiveness of sin for all who believe, rich or poor, Corinthian church, black, white, Asian, or Hispanic, whether you are male or female, for all people, regardless of their influence, their affluence, their cultural background or baggage, were instructed to do all of this together to remember him. Why? 
<coughs> excuse me, verse 26, because when you sit at the Lord's table, as you're taking the Lord's supper, we're remembering Jesus' sacrifice. And I want you to focus on that word because we skim over it as if it's just an act that Jesus did, a religious thing. Sacrifice is a giving of his own body, his own blood, dying for our sin, rising as our Savior, coming again. This is the declaration of, of communion for anyone and everyone who believes and follows him. So a question for you. How does that help us solve the divisions and discords in the family of Christ and in the Corinthian church? See, when you think about the giving nature, the sacrificial nature of Jesus, what he's done for us, the Son of God giving everything on a cross for us, then it suddenly kind of convicts you, doesn't it, a little bit? That I can't just think about myself. I can't just neglect others. When Jesus gave himself for the, for, for love of others and the salvation of others generously, sacrificially, totally for us all. Let me put it to you this way. Why? How does thinking about Jesus, remembering what he has done with his body and his blood on a cross, how does it affect relationships within the family of Christ? A.W. Tozer, famous uh, Christian thinker and pastor, he wrote a book that we have in our uh, lobby called The Pursuit of God. And he addresses the question, how do you tune 100 pianos? In the book, he talks about, you know, you don't become of one accord, getting these 100 pianos to all be in tune with one another by tuning them to each other. In other words, you don't try to take one piano, okay, listen to the, the C key, okay, and then play the other piano, ting, 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 adjust the wires, ting, 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 until you get to C, and then do that for 100 times over. That's not how you tune, get them into one accord. But instead, by tuning them all to the same tuning fork. So you take one tuning fork and tune each piano to that. You tune it to another standard by which each of them must individually bow. And so in the same way, you take a hundred worshipers meeting together, and each of them looking towards Christ, the ultimate tuning fork, and when they do that, they're in their hearts nearer to each other than if you tried with all your might to become unity conscious. To turn your, because when you do that, you're turning your eyes away from God to striving for closer fellowship. So the answer isn't to fix what's going on between us. The answer first is to look towards Jesus. It is the antidote to the lack of acceptance for one another in the body of Christ isn't simply to grit our teeth and force myself to tolerate others or to be kind to others. The starting point isn't a marriage seminar for, to fix your broken marriage or a conflict resolution workshop, even though those are great tools. And I, you know that I highly value that kind of practical training, and we host that often at the crossing. The starting point is for us to get ourselves more in tune with Jesus, because in the Lord's Supper, focusing on Jesus' sacrifice for all is what helps us overcome our divisiveness, our selfishness, and our rejection of others. <coughs> you see, when we look towards Jesus, it empowers us to give each other acceptance as Jesus accepted us through the payment and forgiveness of the cross. As we become more in tune with Jesus and his sacrifice, his giving nature, his grace, that if he pours out so much grace on me, how can it not overflow onto people around me? So perhaps you came to church this morning and you're angry or avoiding or, neg or neglecting certain people because the problem is 
my mom or dad. The problem is my husband or my wife. The problem is with people who are Republicans or Democrats. The problem is with young people. The problem is with the old people. Or the problem is, like the Corinthian church, with rich people. Or the problem is with poor people. No. The problem is that we are all sinful people. But when we look to the cross, we become forgiven people. And all of us loved and forgiven and accepted in Christ so that you and I can love and accept one another in the family of Christ. You understand? If we remember Jesus' death, his forgiveness of sin, his welcome into his family, then we won't overindulge ourselves. We won't despise others. We won't shame others. We won't allow them to go hungry within the family of Christ. Okay, Pastor Paul, so what are we supposed to do differently? Verse 27. Let's wrap up this passage. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, here's that phrase again, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, and that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So in verse 27, Paul says, whoever partakes in Christ in his communion in an unworthy manner, what that means is while I'm, I'm come up for the bread and the cup and I'm thinking and I'm acting and I'm treating others in a way that's incompatible with the nature, the character, the kindness the sacrifice of Christ, then I will be held accountable by him. And not just like, well, you're just being a little bit unkind, but, you know, we can clean that up. But you're being held accountable for siding with those who reject and crucified Christ. What does that include? What does it mean to take communion, take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? It would include if you were to take communion and you are not yet a baptized Christian. Because if you haven't given your life to Jesus, you're not particip- you haven't participated in that first act of obedience where Christ commands us as we receive him to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, testifying to his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism, then you can't yet continue to obey and testify to his death, burial, and resurrection through communion. So it would include those who are not yet Christians or baptized Christians. It would also include those who are unfaithful Christians. If you're living in an ongoing, willful, unrepentant, sinful lifestyle where Jesus is only on your mind on Sunday and you live for yourself the rest of the week, including if you're disobeying Christ by dishonoring and mistreating a brother or sister in Christ. Take the Corinthians in this passage. Unworthy manner. Instead, Paul says in verse 28, we need to examine ourselves. Am I neglecting Christ with my unrepentant sin in my heart and in my life? Am I neglecting other Christians with my lack of love and dignity and concern as my brother, as my sister, as my equal? Whoa there, Paul. Whoa, buddy. I thought you said we're supposed to accept one another in the body of Christ and 
And now you're saying some of us can't take uh, the communion, can't take the Lord's Supper? That sounds very hurtful and exclusive. I would argue, and Paul would say, that's very loving and protective. Because in verse 29, when you take these elements of communion without discerning, without reflecting on the body and blood of Jesus, without being reminded of our dependence on Christ and our, our interdependence with one another, you are inviting the judgment of God upon you. And this is very serious. In verse 30 to 32, Paul warns us, the result is that as some of us come to the Lord's table, the Corinthians, and they are taking the communion without reflecting, without considering, without living out the body and blood of Christ, some of you have grown sick. Some of you have even died. When he says fall asleep, it's a biblical euphemism. It means people died. Now, I want you to hear me very clearly. Not all sickness is because of sin. In fact, a lot of what Jesus kind of argues against in, in the Bible uh, was like a lot of times people would judge other people based on, oh, you're sick, you must be cursed of God in some way. Must, you must have done something wrong. That's not the case. But some sickness is a result of God's judgment upon people's life for sin. And the judgment that he's talking about it's not the eternal spiritual judgment of an unbelieving world, because he contrasts that in verse 32. He's talking about the temporary physical discipline that Jesus uses at times to correct his followers. We know that because he's addressing the Corinthians who are believers in Christ. But he says the antidote here is, if you were to judge yourself through humility, through self-examination, through repentance, then you won't experience this correcting judgment of God in your life. Okay, Paul, how do we get there? Verse 33 and 34, he concludes, you see, when you come together, there's that phrase again, to eat, don't indulge yourself. Then just go eat at home, get full at home. And instead, now, here's the key that I want you to hear because this word is misleading in your translation. Depending on your translation, it says, instead, I want you to welcome or wait for one another, depending on your translation. But the word there literally means to receive other people. And if we take the context of the point of this passage, to receive others as your brother, as your sister, as valued, as equal, instead of inviting God's discipline into our lives. And I want you to think about how important this is, because what happens if you and I were to examine ourselves and extend a welcome to each other? Let me paint you a picture. A woman named Gloria S. was ready to end her life. You see, years of drug abuse, failed relationships, Multiple rejections had taken a huge toll on her heart. And so what she'd been doing is she'd been saving up countless prescri prescription drugs that she had uh, through her regular medication. She was saving it up a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and saved up a countless number of, of it for this specific purpose, to end her life. And so what she did was, as she's getting ready, she turned on the TV, turned up the volume, because she wanted to keep her neighbors from hearing if she was, like, choking or or, or suffocating or dying, didn't want them to call 911 and have her rescued. Now, in the sovereignty of God, the channel that she turned to happened to be airing a live broadcast of the Billy Graham crusade. If you don't know who Billy Graham is, very famous evangelist, probably the most famous Christian in the world other than Paul Jesus, right? And at the very bottom of the screen, as she's watching this live broadcast of Billy Graham preaching the gospel, was a phone number for anyone who needs help. And she doesn't know what it was that prompted her, but she decided, I'm going to call. And she made that phone call before taking any of the pills. She spoke to a Christian counselor on the line who recognized 
the seriousness of her situation and directed her immediately to go to a nearby church where someone could directly and personally give her help. So she decided, okay, I still want to end my life. My life has no meaning, no purpose, but it can wait a day. And so she put it off, trying to commit suicide and attended church the next day, which happened to be Sunday. And there was something about the gospel, something about this man named Jesus, this God who became a man that moved her heart. But it wasn't enough just to hear these good news. A lot of it was her reaction to the people who were there. And so, so he continued to come week after week. And over time, she received Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And one day, she was invited to give her testimony, and she said, you know what, guys? Billy Graham saved me from killing myself. But you, my church, showed me how to be saved from my sin. That the love of you people is incredible. I never knew that someone as dirty as me could ever receive love again. You accepted me just as I was. And I have seen Jesus. He's in the faces of all these people at church who love me. Is that the kind of church that we are? Do I love, welcome, eat with, accept people that way with the grace of God? So this morning, we don't want to just talk about the Lord's table. We're going to ask you to approach the Lord's table. And before we do, in order for us to get there, we need to examine ourselves and our sin and our welcome of others in light of the body and the blood of Christ. So I want you to ask yourself this morning, haven't you give, have you given your life and obedience to Jesus? Or are you continuing to live in sin and rebellion against God? Is there anyone that you're not waiting for welcoming as a brother or sister in Christ here the way that Jesus would wait and welcome yourself? And if so, what steps do you need to take to repent and rectify that before you take the bread and the cup today? You see, just as the ground is level at the feet, foot of the cross, it's also level at the table of Christ. And there's a profound effect of what the body of Christ could be, would be, and what our testimony of Christ could be if we want to examine ourselves and examine our welcome of other people. Let me end with this. If you didn't grow up on the East Coast, this will mean a little bit less to you, uh, but uh, you may only know about Waffle House for its cheap and hearty breakfast meals. It's a place, it's a diner, basically that's open 24-7, and if you ever are keep up with the news, from time to time it'll pop up because there's crazy stories about customers and their bad behavior. Uh, there was a recent video of like a fight that broke out between customers and the, 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 the staff the, that worked there. But I want to present to you a different picture because I grew up on the East Coast when I was younger. It's a place where the door is always open. And when you sit at the table or sit at the bar, you're likely to be greeted by someone who'll call you honey, sugar, baby, sometimes boss, which I like a lot. But you will be greeted, and usually with a smile, by someone who knows what it means to work long hours for very little pay. Some of them are working their way through college. Some are single parents trying to pay rent. Some are just trying to keep their lights on at home. Some are ex-convicts trying to hold down a job 
by wiping tables, desperately trying to believe the rumors of second chances. And on any given day, there might be a family of five seated near you with three small kids scarfing down jelly toast and scrambled eggs. And they're here because the food is cheap. Because there are times that maybe the dad doesn't want the mom to have to cook after working 12 hours at a factory. On the one side of you, there might be three bikers and a war vet swapping stories. And on the other side, an elderly couple who comes every Thursday night just to hear the voices of people because their own kids have long since stopped visiting and they've already buried all of their other friends. And what's amazing about this place is that it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, but you're welcome here. Whether you're straight-laced or strung out, whether you're drunk or sober or in that fuzzy place in between, whether you come in jeans or a business suit or pajamas, no one gets turned away. So the Waffle House may not be church, but I really feel like our church could stand to learn a few things about the open arms and the second chances from this wild wayside diner. We need to be clear about the communion of believers. That it's not just a ritual with a little bread and wine. It's the Waffle House. It's about people coming together, having common union with Christ and common unity with each other where we experience and give and receive the forgiveness of Christ, his grace, his kindness, and his acceptance to one another. And so the Lord's table is a powerful reminder for every baptized Christian about what Jesus has done for us and continues to do through us, to bind us together. So I want to encourage you, would you look to Jesus today? Invite the Holy Spirit to examine and reveal towards repentance and empower you towards change. And as everyone who is a baptized believer comes forward to take the Lord's Supper, do so with a grateful heart towards Jesus and a welcoming heart towards your sisters and your brothers in Christ. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, our Father, we thank you for the communion of believers that the bread and the cup are simply a symbol reminding us of the goodness of God. And so as we sit before you this morning, we ask that you would do a work in all of our hearts. And we all would examine ourselves and come before the presence of a God who gave it all. It may convict us when we're sometimes not willing to give even some to each other. We examine ourselves for those of us who have not yet given our lives to Jesus. It's a time that we made that commitment. Time to recognize that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot fix our own lives. It's only by the profound kindness, mercy, goodness of Christ that we are empowered to a better life, an eternal life. And some of us I've claimed to follow Jesus for many years, but yet we, we refuse to even take that first act of obedience, that first step of testifying to his death, burial, and resurrection through baptism. And how can we testify to his death, burial, and resurrection through communion? Help us, O oh God, whatever areas of sin, rebellion, or rejection of you, examine us and help us to bring it before your table this morning. 
And some of us have known you for decades of our lives, made that commitment, made a public testimony through baptism, and yet we are hiding in our secret sins or in a life that only blesses your name on Sunday mornings and the other six days of the week. We are the Lord and Savior of our own lives. Bring us to repentance this morning. Maybe we've we're very religious legalists and have checked all those boxes. But the reality is there's someone, someone who is a fellow brother or sister in Christ that we have treated with neglect or rejected. Bring that person to mind this morning. Help us to make it right through confession, through repentance, through action. So we bring all these things before you before we come to the table, we discern the body and blood of Christ today. May it bring us into unity and the love of Christ.